I'm Matt Booker. I'm Dave Laird. And I'm Kyle Beachy. How quickly and thoroughly an existence can change. One day, riding a skateboard is all that you can think of doing. So you rush out to meet friends and engage in the most fun thing mankind has concocted, freedom incarnate, here on Concavity Show. And we're back. And we're back. Episode 65 with uh, a recurring guest. Welcome back to the show, Kyle Beachy. Great mm. to have you, man. Thank you. It's good to be back. Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah. You are mold-breaking here in that I think you were the first recurring guest we've ever had on to talk about your own work. Mm. We've had a few recurring guests, obviously, with like Mike Miley and Matt Luter and, and friends like that, but just to kind of just riff and stuff on like favorite stuff of the year, but you are like here to, t- we're here to talk about your work and specifically your book that came out last year in August, the most fun thing, which is what that quote was from. And it's a book primarily about skateboarding, mm-hmm. but it's also a book about marriage and a book about critical theory. And it's a book about gender politics and race and all kinds of stuff in <laughs> here that, and I got to say, Kyle, this book like hit, so many Venn diagrams of interest for me. Like <laughs> Don DeLillo's name comes up about 15 times in this book mm-hmm. and David Foster Wallace does and Bolaño and all the writers that we tend to talk about and love on the show are writ large throughout this. And you wed them with skateboarding, which mm. is, you know, a subculture that I've has been a huge part of my life for a long time and maybe a little bit less so in the last decade. But yeah. it, I really felt the gravitational pull of this book reigniting my interest in skateboarding reading this book like i would just put it down for sometimes like an hour and then just watch youtube videos <laughs> just watch the skate videos that you were talking about in the book and just being like oh my gosh yeah and then remembering old skate videos that i used to watch and all that kind of stuff so there's a lot of rabbit trails a lot of a lot of just mm. deep research that dragged me away from the book but was related to the book it was great oh man that's great you know um yeah I, it's funny one of one of the books that's sitting here in my in my stack next to the laptop is the new uh krasno horkai novel which is a very it's a very slim very slight novel um and it has oh, yeah. it's full of qr codes for audio oh, that yeah. accompanies um that accompanies the short chapters and um Boy, that would have been a cool thing to do, I feel like, you know, to have QR codes yeah, that link true. to the YouTube videos that sort of opened up a way to yeah. to do that. But I mean, that's yeah. that's ideal, right? I mean, that's that sort of, you know, there are ideal readers. And Dave, I think I think I, you might just you might just be him for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I th- it felt like it. It felt like, yeah. wow, this book was really written for me. Yeah. It feels like in a lot of ways. Maybe yeah. for the second edition, you can do one that's all QR codes yeah um, and then yeah just that's a great idea pivot pivot to qr just just the whole thing is a qr code to the right. audiobook <laughs> right, and right. Then, um there's a 2013 nicholson baker book traveling sprinkler where he puts in a, a url for a youtube video of stephen fearing um playing like it's recorded on someone's phone like in the lobby of this paris hotel and when you go to that URL now, like all the comments are like, I typed this in from Nichols Baker. Right. Oh, yeah, Traveling right. Sprinkler sent me here. So it's pretty cool what you could do to 
yeah you know sync up the two but um welcome back as dave was saying this is one of our favorite books of the year last year sorry we didn't have you on right at pub date i'm sure it's been a a crazy ride so the book came out in august 10th ish right yep yes so you've you've had some time now in the publicity campaign to have (laughs) soaked it all in yes and uh you can we want to get your thoughts on on that publishing process too but um if you don't mind, start out by talking about the chronology here, because I know some of these pieces we actually did talk about when you were on yeah, last time. And the so, one. but I don't yeah. even know if you had a book deal back then or if you had, you know, what, what was the process of saying, okay, I'm going to take, you know, 10 years of material. Sure. Um, so yeah, let me, let me reiterate before I, I go any further that it's really exceptionally good to be here and talking to you guys about this. Um, I, I recall very fondly coming on and talking about Infinite Jest last time and teaching that Infinite Jest. That was episode Jest. 45. That was 20 episodes ago. Oh, that's great. That's, that was like two years ago. That's perfect. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, so, yeah, you know, I mean, my... Um, my sort of project of the last decade starting, I suppose it started right around 2011, um, began um, out of a place of just kind of a a sort of balance of artistic frustration. Um, I, you know, I I could go on at length about the challenges that I encountered um, trying to write my second novel. Um, You know, it's, it's sort of a trope that the second novel is, is (laughs) harder. Um, I, you know, I'm certain that the third novel is probably harder too. Like I, you know, I think, I think I'm of the camp that believes that every novel is probably just exceptionally hard to do. I think they're just very hard to do, but in any case, novels are fucking killer. They're killer. Uh, So, I started um, having an outlet writing critically um, in a way that seemed to me to be missing from um, the culture that had been, you know, for my entire life, you know, even far more dominant than literary culture. Um, I've always been a skateboarder. Um, And uh, it seemed like there was an opportunity to write about the primary objects of skateboarding culture, which are videos, which are, you know, have traditionally been videos of a length somewhere between 40 and 60 minutes. Um, and that number has just plummeted in the last decade. Um, because of YouTube, because of YouTube, because of platforms, Instagram and, and also just like marketing, you know, I think, I think, um, well, there, there's a lot, there's a lot to go on with that, but in any case, it seemed like there were some things changing and it seemed like there, there were some, um, interesting new developments in the world of skateboarding and skateboarding, um, literature, right? I mean, I, I don't hesitate to call the the sort of texts of skateboard culture literary objects. So um, I, I started writing about them and not a lot, you know, not like cranking these things out. Um, they really were sort of counterpoint to trying to continue to write fiction because um, I am a novelist and I, you know, I identify as a novelist and, you know, that's a sort of um, ephemeral title. You don't want to, you don't want to let that go too far. Um, so, you know, as I was kind of butting my head against a wall, uh, I was writing these articles about skateboarding and some of them got some traction. And after I kind of got out the sort of initial burst of like, let's write critically, like let's perform a close reading of this object, um, the, the sort of things I started writing began getting more and more personal and got more and more, um, I guess, further afield of that sort of initial impulse. And so slowly 
my sort of life started coming in to the essays that I was writing, mm-hmm. um, which felt totally natural, right? Like because I'm a skater and because skateboarding is a thing that I do all the time, it, it only made sense to kind of integrate that into the kind of journalism quote unquote that I was doing. Um, mm-hmm. and then, you know, at a certain point I, I got, I ended up getting an agent for the novel that I was writing. Um, she was not able to sell my novel manuscript. Um, but there was an editor in New York, and this is now we're talking about, I guess, 2019, um, an editor in New York who agreed to read the novel and also wanted to, he said, you know, hey, do you have a collection of these essays of yours that I've seen online? Because they were appearing on various websites. Um, and I packaged them up and I sent them off and it ended up being about 150 pages. And he said, well, I, I, like everyone else, don't love the novel, but I really quite like these essays. You know, can we make this half of a book? And then I spent, you know, the next six months writing the, the rest of the book, um, okay. which, which I, think, I think I've said before, but ended up being the, the most sort of um, lubricated and easy and satisfying writing I've ever done in my life. Like that six months of being under book contract and knowing mm-hmm. the object I was making was almost, almost made up for 10 years of butting my head against a wall with a, a, a novel that ended up, you know, creating a whole lot of frustration. So yeah, I mean, and that was it. And then, you know, I put about six months of work into it and we packaged it up and it became what it is. That's an amazing amount of output in a short amount of time, especially given the quality of it. And you make a great point on page 30. You say skateboarding writing like is inherently historically lazy and bad. Yeah. Which is so true, man. Like <laughs> I used to subscribe to Transworld Skateboarding Magazine in yeah. my teens. And, like every article was just like, I'm going to read some of this, but it's not good. Mm-hmm. And like as a 15 year old, I could even tell at that time that it was not good writing. Right. Right. And, th- and you know, there have been some key, really, really good pieces of skateboard literature along the way, but yeah. for the most part, sure. like language generally just is, is a sort of unstable, strange kind of tourist yeah. in the world of skateboarding. Like skateboarding yeah. doesn't really need language, right. Aside from like the taxonomy of tricks um, right. and like celebrating what someone has done, you know, there's mm-hmm. not a great deal of need for language. And so it just hasn't really generally been kind of front and center in what skateboarding is. Yeah, totally. Well, and on that note for, you know, for people who are maybe listening to this and being like, I don't really give a shit about skateboarding. Sure. Uh, sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's kind of like me. And I, you know, I think that the, the same analogy I would make, even though this is not fiction is like with infinite Jess. like I'm not a tennis guy. I don't really give yeah. a shit. I don't really watch, competitive tennis all that much i don't really keep up with it i don't play it never played it um and i'm the same with skateboarding like you do not want to get me on a skateboard but to me this book uh what i loved about it is um there's a lot of uh other stuff in it for sure criticism Mm -hmm. um memoirish stuff but most of all i think what separates it from bad fiction is the kind of vulnerability you display here Mm. and the kind of heart that is behind not just your passion for, for skateboarding, but really what that is kind of a symptom of is like the passion for living. Mm. And, you know, you, you kind of get to this in various ways. And I think that, you know, your personal relationships are part of that, that it's part of life. And it's like, you're going to talk about your life. Mm -hmm. You have like, how could you ever write about anything else except for 
what you are doing, which is apparently a lot of fucking skateboarding. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, and, and I mean, that's it. Right. Like, uh, and thank you. Uh, yeah. The, it's funny because I did play tennis. Like I played very competitive tennis, right? right? I like, I had to quit playing tennis because it, it drove me so bonkers. Like it, <laughs> I do, I do not have the emotional, the psycho emotional fortitude to be the only person on a court. Right. Like, um, and, but I've you never know, been this... whaling either, you know, like I never go like, <laughs> right, on a whaling exactly. ship. It's a pretty great exactly. fucking novel. You can learn a lot about whaling. I learned right. a lot about skateboarding. Right. And there was stuff that I had yeah, to look up in this, which I honestly enjoyed looking up stuff where I was like, circle this, come back to it. I have no idea. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, but I do that with anything that I'm reading. Could be a military book. I'm like, I don't right. know what this term is. And you go learn something. So I think readers who are curious about the world, it's great to have someone like you who is an expert in this world for your whole life kind of like taking your hand and leading you into this other world and saying take a look here's what these guys yeah. are really doing out here um and yeah. you know the the i will say the structure of the book too makes it easier on that kind of reading so that they're mm. the, the pieces are short enough and distinct enough that like hey if you, yeah. you want to skip ahead, there's a, there's a marriage piece here right after this one. Right. And, you know, right. yeah, I, I, totally. I, yeah. go back to that, that moment where you're like, Oh shit, I need to go write half a book. Mm -hmm. And how, how did you land on this kind of a structure? Um, there's like, for people who can't see the book at home, there's four parts and um, kind of bafflements in between some yeah interspersed in some of these parts. Yeah. So I think the, the four part structure, um, came, you know, that's sort of emerged later on, but the, the, uh, the sort of impulse to have what I thought of as interstitials of, you know, here, the essays will move chronologically and then we'll have, um, material in between them. Um, that came very, very quick. And that, you know, that's sort of rooted in one of, you know, the, probably the most dominant metaphor of, the novel, which is which is about cracks, which is about seams, which is about um, you know what what skateboarding does more or less that that I think is so magical is it 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 insists that anyone who does it pay attention to the world, right? You can't be a skateboarder without being very aware of your surroundings and aware of your surroundings in ways that typically we just are not as we move through the world, right? The things we take for granted, the sidewalk under our feet, um, the nature of the texture of the actual planet we live on, right? Like the texture of the globe. Um, and you say in one part, me looking through any car's window with a winged predator's eye. Yeah. Any noting stairs, a granite ledge, considering run-up space, traffic patterns. Yeah. Page 168. Yeah. Skate vision. Yeah. Skate vision. You, um, you do see the world differently. And you can't... I have that now for playgrounds for children, for my own kids. <laughs> like, oh, that playground, that playground's got three slides. That was That's dope. Pretty we, should take, we should take fee there. You got to <laughs> drop a pin. Um, I mean, and so, you know, Matt, back to your question about the interstitials, like, you know, the idea would be like create a book that has these sort of cracks and, you know, you get into those cracks and you see what's in them, what exists between these two things. Um, and, you know, my editor was really great. Like, I, I can't possibly go on a podcast without shouting out my editor, Wes Miller, who himself is a skater and who took a big chance on this book and who managed to strike the most impeccable balance between essentially like 
pushing me in a certain direction and then just completely hands offing it and being like, I trust you. you. You know, I think you should have some more autobiographical information. I think at a certain point you have to talk about your first skateboard. I think at a certain point you should talk about, um, you know, your parents' divorce. Like these are things you might want to hit. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, there were, there was always, there was always a kind of idea of what are the pieces we have? What are the seams or the cracks between them? And then, you know, the, the other stuff was what are the articles you haven't written yet? Right. And, and that was sort of part of the real joy was like, okay, imagine if, if the sort of writing process with the, the bulk of the articles was, Hey, I'm going to write this thing and then see if there's anyone in the world who might possibly be interested in publishing this really strange semi-literary piece of skateboard writing. Mm -hmm. At the end, it was basically like, I've got this chunk of money that this giant New York publisher has given me and said, Oh, we need about 30 more pages of hypercritical skateboard writing. And it was like, okay, <laughs> I, I, I will take that. Happy chunk to oblige. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was a kind of dream situation also of just like, there were certain things that I really knew that I had to write about. And Dylan reader, um, was one of them. I do want to talk about this chapter. The Picasso point. statue in downtown Chicago was I, I love another that. one of them. I love that. And then, yeah, you know, cool. getting, getting into, uh, Jeff Grosso, um, one of the mm -hmm. most sort of legendary skaters and skate uh, commentators that's probably ever lived. And, you know, and then the other thing was that along the way, my life was advancing. COVID was settling across the world. My wife and I it got right up to the cliff of a divorce. And, you know, these things found their way into the book. Yeah. And you said that the lockdown saved your marriage. The lockdown saved our marriage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, put bluntly, the lockdown saved our marriage. <laughs> the chapter about you having the discussion with the marriage counselor mm. that you're going to separate, it's like some of the rawest autobiographical writing I've ever read. And I just like, it's really hard hitting and it's like deeply affecting. And you captured some really beautiful mm. phrases and feelings in that section. Um, you, you refer to your spouse as K throughout the book yeah. only just the initial. Yeah. What was, what's been her sort of feeling about being immortalized in this way? We were, um, with the letter, we, we, we were very, um, on board throughout. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, she, she under, she understands that she has since the get go understood the nature of this project and understood. And she's a writer too, right? Yeah. She's a poet. She poetry um, and, she's yeah. a poet and a professional writer. Um, yeah. and, uh, you know, in fact, a much better writer than I am. So like, it really comes down to, um, you know, I think, I think she was, she felt probably like I did, um, the sort of vulnerability of exposure. Like it's, it's mm -hmm. strange to be exposed in this way. Um, yeah. I, you know, I think the thing that, that really kind of set us both a shock was, um, the publisher's marketplace announcement that basically said like a book about, you know, uh, his failed marriage. Um, and, and I think for both of us, that was a little like, well, like how dare right. you publishers marketplace? Like, you don't know, you don't know me, <laughs> the gall. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there were some shocks along the way. Um, but you know, for the most part, that's, that's long gone by now. Um, mm -hmm. and yeah, I think the K thing, she is, um, I mean, she's, she's, I thought it was the, fine. 
She's the best. She, <laughs> Kristen, her name's Kristen with a K, and she's the best. And um, yeah, I mean, she was, she's been very on board. She, she understands. I mean, the yeah. marriage part stuff in general to me was some of my favorite stuff in the book. So mm-hmm. uh, congratulations totally. on, uh, on, on using that, that part of your life. Because I, I also felt like um, this is a, a criticism of <clears throat> books in general, but uh, mm. a fiction in particular that, that doesn't feel true yeah. is that you can tell there's something the writer's holding back. Yeah. And with your book, I never felt that for a minute. I felt like if anything, you would bloody yourself in an attempt yeah. to get more truth into the page. And that, and that is very rare. Um, so I, and I, and for me, Dave, you mentioned the, the counselor part, right? Where you go and mm-hmm. see a marriage counselor and it, it, you kind of get us right up to this brink of a breakup. But really the part for me that, that, just struck a chord was you have this fight in a cab in new york yeah. and and i was like did you ride in a cab with me and my wife when we were <laughs> dating because we had a fight exactly like this yeah and it traumatized me like it was traumatic and she got out of the cab and like ran away yeah and and i just remember being in the cab and being like this is crazy right uh, right and like, what do I do now? How do you fix this? Right. And like, so for you, putting that kind of stuff into the book um, made it work extremely well. Again, for readers like me that are, I have to Google about every damn name in here. Um, <laughs> that I, I just don't know the people. But right. for me, a lot of this, I think where I'm going with this question is about tied up with what you've kind of glossed over a little bit, which is the failed skateboarding novel. Mm-hmm. And you do allude to it a bit in the book. Uh, and to me, that was very curious about that because I wanted to know, you know, because one, I assumed your next book would be a skateboarding novel, right? right? Like right. for your career trajectory, knowing, you know, what the slide is really not a skateboarding novel. Yeah. Um, for people who haven't read it, I, I don't know if we need to summarize it or describe it, but it's, it's more of a suburban youth adventure type yeah, um, um, that's great. No, I love that. It's a super. It's, it's a it's and a po- it's a post college summer novel. There you go, and the, yeah. there you go, and <laughs> yeah. there's some. Uh, I'm sure there's a skateboard in that book, somewhere in the slide, maybe. If there is, <laughs> it's in the background on the, on the cover. Or <laughs> yeah. On the cover, maybe. The, um, but God. anyways, uh, what I assume after that you were like okay, I'm going to do this book about skateboarding. And it was, you're a novelist, you're a fiction writer. So I wanted to talk about, you know, the logic behind sort of the arts, heart's purpose there. Like, what were you trying to to show the world with that project? Well, I think a lot of this, um, both both the stuff you're sort of saying about um, exposing, like, the fight in New York and um, speaking with our marriage counselor, like... It seems to me the best way maybe to get into that stuff is is to talk about narrative, right? Like this this book is a book of critical essays. It advances mm-hmm. in time, and as the essays progress chronologically, they they change very much in form. Um, the The only other kind of narrative element in there is um, 
well, there are two. There's my relationship to my wife and our kind of coming together and then our very near kind of disillusion of our marriage. And then there's also the struggle, the sort of plot line that is the struggle of trying to write this novel, um, which, which, you know, more or less was the struggle with the novel itself. Like I set out to write a novel about skateboarding um, that I wanted to structurally, formally, and thematically mirror what skateboarding is, um, which is predominantly a non-narrative act, right? Like the thing that is so wonderfully slippery and elusive about skateboarding is that you can't really narrativize it. You really can't. It's too full of repetition. It's too full failure. of <laughs> failure and erasure, yeah. self-erasure. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it seems that the, maybe the best way to talk about it is that I didn't really have the chops to write the novel that I imagined, right? Like, mm -hmm. I just wasn't quite up for it. And so, you know, a lot of the things the editors said in their rejection letters rang really um, painfully true, which is like, it seems like he's trying too hard or this book sets out to do something that I just don't get. And I don't think he achieves it. Um, mm. And I think they're right. Like, I think it was an incredibly um, ambitious, ambitious yeah. work, which is, you know, a typical downfall of the second novel challenge, like set out to write a thing that's nothing like your first book. Um, and, and I did, you know, it ended up defeating me, the, the sort of weird kind of, um, wonderful silver lining in all that is that the non-narrative book that I wanted to write ends up being this nonfiction book that I put out, right? Like mm. the sort of reverse inverse double gainer backflip of it is that the the weird critical memoir I've written does everything that I could have possibly wanted that novel to do. Mm. Um, and so th that's been that's been really heartening in terms of, you know, some of the existential questions about like, what does it mean to be a writer? Um, you know, first and foremost, being that it, it really puts the focus back on process and it puts the focus back on, hey, you know, this writing was good. This writing was healthy. This writing felt like as I was doing it that I was actually enjoying myself. Maybe there's a lesson there. Like maybe, maybe what one should search for as a writer um, is finding the project that allows for that sort of joy as opposed to the yeah. sort of like you know the the chorus of oh this is so miserable i'm so miserable god writing's so hard like maybe it doesn't always have to be right yeah right and you and you have an essay kind of about that in here mm. of standing in front of your students and saying like oh writing is so fun and it's so much joy and inside <laughs> you're really feeling like i'm fucking lying to you and this right. is really miserable right. and hard and i hate it yeah uh, but it sounds like it's because you were doing something that was not the right thing for you to do at that time yeah i had a very very unhealthy relationship to narrative which probably like i think any american who's consumed any entertainment in the last 10 years has had a crisis of narrative right i mean the what what we're seeing in sort of in terms of conspiracies now is not the beginning of it, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the sort of narrativization of, of sides has, has been dominant in the last 10 to 20 years in the US kind of 24 hour news yeah. cycle. And so, you know, I was really trying to reject narrative and I was trying to do it in a novel and that was foolish. Like that was Samuel Beckett's game, right? That is not me game. I'm, I am not the genius that can pull that off. Um, what, what I can do though, is make that, 
that sort of narrative ambiguity or agnosticism, I can make that central to something like an essay and, and the essay form settling into it ended up being just like magical for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I do think you're right about that. That A lot of people are sick of the, the kind of just simplistic narratives we've been yeah. fed and yeah. the, the fantasy that, uh, you know, A, B, C, D, a very linear path of, of stories are going to happen. All of that seems to have broken down in our lifetimes. Yeah. yeah. And, I think that's reflected in not just reading habits, but, uh, you know, what people or how people are choosing to write, which is much more kind of fractured, uh, which kind of gets to your thing about the cracks and this little Mm -hmm. pieces that are, it's a little more fragmentary, you know, than, than, but that's how in my reality, I experience reality is very fucking fragmented all the time. And it's very actually hard for me to sit down and write nonstop on anything for 55 minutes in a row like or read something for an hour in a row like that's that's asking a lot of people right now and so yeah um you know i wanted to ask because this is something i know nothing about is like how has the book been received amongst skateboarders that's a good question um it's because you dunk on some people in here (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, you dunk on Nigel Houston. You dunk on Nike. I can certainly. assure you that Nigel Houston has not read it. I mean, that's the first thing I could say is that yeah, that Mark fool has not Suchu read a has, word right. of this. No, Mark Suchu um, was very receptive to it. Uh, yeah. I, he endorses it. Your friends, you guys are skating together. I see. He's, <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm not on his skater of the year trip right now to wherever he is. Um, mm. But what I will say is that um, it's been divisive. You know, like. Yeah, there are like each of the essays was. So I was kind of steeled against that. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. there are people who will say this is just like absolute pretense that this is just pretentious, Um, which, you know, I'm I'm happy to kind of wear that wear that crown completely like it is you you with all your book reading and writing. over Right. Right. Uh, there, that, that, yeah, that makes me think of like another additional question. I think we talked about this a bit last time about like skate culture mm-hmm. is kind of, in my experience, kind of inherently like burnout, like not a lot of necessary, yeah. necessarily like motivation. Not about going life, to school like and reading books. Education, <laughs> tertiary education. It's kind of so the opposite you know, like, of that. That... That that has been so that that's sort of like the traditional notion of what a skater is. I think that yeah, to say that now would be quite a bit would be. Days. Yeah, that would be ignoring a, a real a real kind of emergent thread of, you know, really thoughtful skaters. Yeah, um, I remember like Mark Johnson kind of around like maybe like the. I don't know, in the aughts, yeah. in the late aughts, you know, seemed to be like a guy who was really engaged with like fiction and philosophy. Yeah, and, I mean, that was it. Like you would know who the, the readers were. Like that was part totally, of their brand. Totally, like, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so that's opened up a lot, right? Like it's no longer a stigma to be um, thoughtful. Uh, so that's that's slowed off. You know, that's sort of slowed down a little bit. I mean, the other mm-hmm. thing is that skaters have always been – artists or at least nascent artists. There's always, there's always been that. It's just that the medium has always been visual. It's always been like a whole lot of photographers, right? Like every skater probably sort of secretly identifies as a photographer, um, sculptors, filmmakers, of course. Um, but you know, writers are like 13 far between, you know, a lot of young kids and like, honestly, some of the best like skaters I have seen 
locally are kids who are just super young. So yeah. to so to say anything of like, oh, well, you're you are this. It's right. like, right? They're thirteen year, they're fourteen years old. Like he doesn't know what he is. Like right. give him a yeah. chance to go experience the world. It's like that's that's a definitely a bias. You know, we probably all have from being kids. And you know, yeah. I'm. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, 172 years old, so for me that was a while ago. When I'm looking down on these little kids, that that's like part of your identity in a way that, like, if you just ride your bike down the street, people wouldn't be like, "Oh, those bikers." Yeah, you know, there's something about it that is very, mm-hmm. you know, you're locked in as that, like, that's your, it's, it's something it's your more your identity, of, like yeah. of choice. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I guess that's not really a question for you, but it did answer my question about how skate skaters um because i do think your book is one of the highest profile like skating books books about skate ever but also like being so literary minded yourself Mm. your sensibility can't help but come through in that yeah so and i i I guess like you would have to be okay with that long before you wrote this right like yeah i mean i guess for the most part like i really did just have blinders on you know like this sort of notion of who's who's going to read this is this going to be too bookish for skaters and too skaters for book people like um i kind of left that concern to my editor um and you know and i to it to an extent one has to um i bet i could have i bet i would be a better fiction writer if i could do more of that with my fiction you know like i don't i don't know that we should we should be too aware of how a thing is going to be received and i and, and in fact you know one of the sort of maybe stultifying realities of contemporary fiction is that so many writers are just baked into their writing processes, knowing exactly to whom they're writing and exactly who's the publishing house that's going to do it and exactly how it'll be received and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I mean, to, to a certain extent, I think that stuff is, um, yeah, it's dangerous. <laughs> and, and I was fortunate to not, not have to think about it too much. Well, mm-hmm. talk about a little bit then about the epigraph, because I felt like there was some, I don't know, little doubt in that the mary royful quote yeah about about absurdity imbecility imbecility good god i can't believe it um and, <laughs> and she says uh well, i'm gonna read it i suppose as a yeah, poet among my fears can be counted the deep-seated uneasiness surrounding the possibility that one day it will be revealed that i consecrated my life to an imbecility yeah uh, I think maybe the biggest reach or, or maybe the reach that felt most central um, to me in terms of uniting those two fronts, the literary and the skateboarding, was um, the claim that I once I made it, I had to really stick to it, um, which was that skateboarding essentially is poetry, right? That it's in its non-narrativity, in its mm-hmm. sort of formal components and and structural sort of adventurousness, um, in its sort of um, di- disregarded status um, in the kind of broader culture, um, it, it's, it seems to have a whole lot of things in common with poetry. Um, and so I found some kind of... Um, it moves to the beat of jazz. Sure, sure. But I found some sort of That's spiritual... There, sort of. I found some spiritual kind of 
support in the way that some poets address um, what they do. Right. Um, skateboarding yeah. is, you know, the first thing it is, is silly. It is an unserious thing. Um, and so to, to dedicate some very serious thought and language and hours to thinking about it mm. re- required in a certain way, like embracing that sort of silliness. And I think what th- the, the Mary Royful quote does is it says, well, yeah, so be it. Like, this is it. Right. I, it's in, certainly in, less silly than NFTs. Well, for sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And I think it was like um, maybe Wendell Berry who said like cutting down a tree is a poem. Mm. And, mm. you know, there's something with like nature writing that you could make some of the same claims that like nature doesn't need language. Like, mm. like uh, you know, a deer running through the forest is experiencing this world the same mm-hmm. as we are. It doesn't write a book about it. Right. or try to describe it to its friends. Um, there's something, I think, very uh, poetic about that, you know, of things that, like you said, don't really require or have their own sort of mm-hmm. narrative systems. Um, you know, you cut a branch off a tree, it falls down. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end to that story. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if a person goes up on a ramp and comes down and goes up and comes down, it can be very hard to try to map our current like ideas of of narrative or story onto, you know, something that we haven't experienced. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I for one just haven't experienced what, you know, a day of skating has been. So, Dave, you have maybe you could shed some a light on days. this. A lot of days. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I think like you talk one of the major themes in this book is community and and the community of skateboarding and there's a lot of personal attachment to that for you Mm -hmm. obviously in the way you talk about it like you call skateboarding a gratitude factory Mm -hmm. in this context on page 300 right like that there's there's just like no community like this of like globally of what it's like to be a skateboarder yeah and you could meet somebody in poland and you don't speak the same language and you both have a skateboard in your hand and the way that you can interact with each other based on that is something really magical and incredible. Yeah. Um, so I think like to, to the point about uh, imbecility or um, it's like communities imbue activities of meaning in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah, I think like, so. I think, I mean, I think this has come up kind of recently in, in the sort of surprise success of Jackass, the new Jackass film. <laughs> yeah. Um, someone, someone has called it recently. Like this is, this is positive masculinity. Like what, what oh, yeah. this is, is a sort of like, um, the opposite of to- toxic masculinity, you know, and these are, mm-hmm. these are men who are just brutalizing each other and, <laughs> and, and then embracing and saying, I love you. And not to right. mention are completely comfortable with each other's, um, dicks and balls, right? Like yeah. it is just purely, um, a non factor, right? Like the, right. all of the things that typify for me, my sort of memories of shameful masculinity were about, mm-hmm. you know, do not expose um, your nether region. Do not do not embrace men. And, and you know, g- good God, who would you, you say I love you to him? So, I mean, and that's that's not to say that I was raised in a like a football family. But I mean, you know, th- you see remnants of that stuff or you get trickle down of that stuff. And, you know, the, the fact On that note, I would say, too, sorry to interrupt you, but the, not a lot of dudes also writing a memoir about their marriages. Yeah. Yeah, which probably we could, sad. we could use more. We could use more of that. Um, 
I, yeah, I guess, I guess there's something there. Like, I believe there's something there, you know, my sort of impulse is when I think about following this book with another nonfiction book, it seems like it wouldn't be writing about skateboarding. It would be writing about that. It would be trying to find a way into the nature of community, the nature of, um, the nature of friendship that that it that it introduces. I mean, there are so many people I know who would would aside from football games on like Sunday. You know, I got a lot of dude friends. I got a lot of married hetero friends, um, mm. and th- those that are not skaters do not have the sort of Wednesday night. Let's all go to a warehouse and laugh and yeah. support each other and. Mm-hmm. That's why we have a podcast. Share this kind of mutual support. I mean, it's 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 very rare to have an absolutely unanimous support structure among purely male participants. It's strange. Mm -hmm. And without sport, right? I mean, without... Um, without competition, without the like, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to like, if you're playing a game of pickup basketball, like someone gets injured, like someone gets injured mm-hmm. right. and it's not just cause they stepped that's on an ankle. Skateboarding too, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not, in a different it's way. not someone that does it to you, you know, does like, it to you. yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's the distinction. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that, that nature of the community has, has definitely been impacted by COVID, you know, and people, mm-hmm not going out um but maybe that's every community on the planet almost maybe that's less of an issue with skateboarding because you can be six feet apart from people or they were already wearing masks or i don't know Mm. but uh the the um the the epigraph i think we we covered that that question but i I had some um uh, going back to the um uh the thing about the title really too it comes from kind of the one about Wallace and he wrote a lot about fun, right? Supposedly yeah. fun thing, the nature of the fun. And you know, that, that essay he wrote about how writing wasn't really fun. You know, did, did you identify, I guess, with some of what Wallace wrote about in that, that sequence of events where you put a lot of work into your first book because it was fun to write and then you start getting more attention. You start caring more what people are saying. Yeah. So you're writing for maybe to show off a little bit, maybe to, you know, your motivation behind it changes. And then writing becomes miserable and fun. Yeah. You know, he uh, got back to this, I think, by focusing on what he called the arts heart's purpose. Like, what are you getting yeah. at behind it? But what, what was it for you that I would, I guess, ask, like, made writing fun again? Well, if I could, if I could answer that first by kind of maybe maybe touching on the Wallace thing because it it, it is also the case that part of the the sort of narrative machinery that I was reacting so negatively to um, was in particular the narrative around Wallace's death. Um, you know the the way that he was spoken of um, in the the original New Yorker article. Um, the way that Franzen spoke of him in his sort of mm. um, memorial address um, and the furthermore essay um, there, there were some, there were some kind of, it felt like claiming, right. This idea that, uh, you know, particularly the notion I saw that, you know, that people touched on and then moved on from that was like part of, part of the factor of 
his end of life and his his choice of suicide was related to his art. It was that he couldn't, the sort of even the implication that he couldn't live up to infinite jest, um, right. and that that somehow had something to do with with his his end of life moments, um, mm-hmm. which to me just was as as absolutely. Um, I don't know. It's grotesque. Like that's, it's a grotesque thing to presume that we have any sense of what someone at the end of life is, is encountering or dealing with. So in any case, um, back, back to the kind of the, the idea of fun. I mean, I think, I think what was very valuable to me about Wallace was that he was a writer that I couldn't, I couldn't read and then write. You know, he was, again, he was sort of paralyzing for me. He was, um, it was like watching, um, it's like watching Shane O'Neill skateboarding and then trying to go skate and you're like, dude, as if. (laughs) Yeah. Except that, except that for some reason in skateboarding, I don't feel that. And that was kind of it. At all. Yeah. Right. I don't yeah. feel that. I, I am. I mean, there have been times I've been intimidated skating, right? You show up at, for the first mm. time at a famous skate spot, your first time yeah, right. in New York City <laughs> and like the coolest people you've ever seen are there. Like you're tight. It's a little uncomfortable. You're not doing mm. your best. But never once have I ever thought, oh, I can't do what they're doing. Why even bother? And yet I felt that on every page of Wallace's writing. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was a question of... Of why is that? Why is it that this one, these two things I love, one of them is so fragile that I claim is not is isn't competitive. I claim writing is about expression, and yet I here I am just like melting in the face of someone else's work. And that extended, right? It wasn't just Wallace that did that. It was also other people's success and other people's sort of. You know, any sort of work that came out that I admired, it didn't cause me to want to make my own work. It it made me retract into myself. And that's not, that is the spectrum opposite of how skateboarding works. And so part of it for me was really like, why is it? Why is, are these two things, the two things I'm kind of talented at, why is it that one of them is so wonder, like embraces and encourages seeing genius and wants to just Mm -hmm. participate and the other one just like retracts and retreats and crumbles into itself. Why is that? And so, you know, what I, what I have tried to do and continue to try to do every time I sit down in the morning to try to write my fiction these days is remember that difference and remember that there is a part of me that can bask in greatness without feeling coward, like without wanting to abandon ship. Mm. Do you think it has to do with like money and career being associated with writing for you because you know like you're a creative writing professor and 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 skateboarding is more of like a fun activity that you maybe like recreational it's not tied to your career i mean i know it's definitely about scarcity it's about the idea that if if writer x is getting attention then i i can't ever um so, you know, it's it's false notions of scarcity. I don't know if it's financial in particular, but it's definitely about Well, and so, I yeah. think you can tell there are there it would be easy to fall into the trap of ego and vanity where you see your name, you know, in the top of the New York Times bestseller list and you see everyone um you know, retweeting pictures of your book cover with your name that you picked out the cover. And there's all this like you and your name is so central to yeah. that 
work of art in a way that some other things like you're talking about, let's say a guy who, I don't know, does some paints a mural. Like it's mm-hmm. people are like, wow, I love that painting. They don't say like, Oh, I'm reading the guy's name. It's very right. much tied up with your, like your motivation behind it to, you know, make this w- ugly wall beautiful. That's your motivation rather right. than to like, I'm going to impress you with how smart I am. Yeah. And you know, we get people sometimes, we have one review on this show of uh, of someone saying, I wish you guys were like smarter. Like, you, you know, <laughs> like you should be smarter. Your show sucks because you're not very smart. Right. And like right, right. that's sort of the implication behind a lot of writing is I think fear, you know, that people are going to get called out and said, oh, well, I actually read your thoughts and they suck. Yeah. And you're not actually very smart because you didn't even know this and they're all going to laugh at you. There's a right. very like childish fear you know behind all of that that yeah and and like you said defensively it's probably baked into a lot of writing so people are like i'm not going to take this risk i am going to build in my core audience and give them exactly what they want and i am not going to risk anything because i don't have to i can get yeah. this love and praise and acclaim without having to really reveal myself i mean plenty of novels are not you know they're they're pure I don't know, science fiction or something that's yeah, like, yeah, it, I mean, it's not a reflection of the person's smarts. Maybe there, there's a portion of this certainly that is, that is baked into the way that we, we speak of novels and we promote novels and, you know, every novel is the sort of like the new coming of, of whomever. Right. I mean, even, even the sort of like star review publishers, weekly Kirkus kind of machinery, like the, the nature of hyperbole that goes into that. Um, you know, and, and it has to, it's just that there's so much noise. And so if we're going to try to distinguish one of the thousands of books that come out each season, like the only way to speak of it is to shower it with praise. And so if you are cons- consistently working on a project for a long time, like novelists do, um, this is kind of what is coming in your face all the time. Look at this genius. Look at this genius. Look at this genius. Look at this genius. I mean, um, <laughs> And they're all not you, you know, like the one thing all of those books and people have in common is they're not fucking you. And that can be, (laughs) that can be tough, you know, and that's, yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I was susceptible to that. I was very susceptible to that. Um, and, and I don't, I don't know where that failure came from. Like, I don't know if that was a failure of being a competitive person, like growing up being an outdoor person and playing sports all the time. Um, I don't know if that was because I, I, I missed some sort of class that we were steeled against (laughs) that sort of thing. But I, what I am happy to admit is that I was absolutely vulnerable to all that stuff. And, and it's, it, it made for a, a pretty dark kind of time. Yeah. And I wonder how much of that is tied up with, you know, success at a young age where you get Mm. into a good college, you get good grades, you know, you win some award at your university. Yeah. Kyle, how old were you when you got a book deal? I was. uh, Oh, God, how how old was I? I mean, I was (laughs) pre 30. Right. Like 27, maybe. I was probably 29. I think it was 20, 20. Yeah. The book came out in 2009, right? So yeah, I so I, and I was born in 78. So yeah, I was, it was probably 2007 that I got the deal. So I was probably 29 years old. 
That's insane, man. So that's a lot different with someone getting their book contract at 40. Absolutely. Or well, what's Wallace more ins- got it at 24. You know? well, yeah, what's more <laughs> insane is that it felt late to me. It felt right. late. And it does. Right, and right. like, that's the thing. It's never early enough. Nothing's early right. enough. No advances enough. I mean, it's the sort of thing. <laughs> it's the, you know, what, what you worship will destroy you. Right. And, and, you know, ultimately, you know, the books that we, I don't know, read for hundreds of years or read for 50 years, uh, you know, do we care how old the person was when they got a book deal? Like, of course not. I don't even know. Like, you know, I love Wittgenstein's mistress famously rejected like 52 times. Right. Right. And, you know, he was 68 years old when a book was published. Um, And, you know, there are just tons of stories that you look at other career paths. It does seem to be almost like this machine that can starting with the MFA system. So you're an MFA teacher, right? Yeah. Uh, And, you know, I I wonder, like, I'm sure you have lots of students who you sincerely love that you want, you want them to be not just good writers, but like healthy people in the world. And like, what, what kind of like advice do you give them in regards to this stuff? Like mentally as they're sending work out? I mean, I think, I think what I've, I've done and I couldn't do this for, you know, when you're in, when you're in the shits, like when you're deep in the, in the mire of it, you can't really go in there and sort of <laughs> address the mire, you know, like right. it, it, you couldn't. Get what, back what, to me in a year. Two right. Years, right? What, what I am more sort of deliberate about these days is, I mean, first of all, the prospect of any of them getting teaching jobs is gone. Right. So that's off the table. You know, my students are not going to get teaching jobs. Um, if they get teaching jobs, it's going to be an adjunct sort of comp gig in one of the surrounding Chicago areas. And they're going to have to hustle and they're going to make whatever $1,700 per class or whatever it is. Um, so that, that's sort of out the sort of prospect of I'm going to get this degree and I'm going to become a teacher is kind of off the table now. Um, what I, what I am more comfortable speaking to is, um, life outside of it, you know, like, I mean, but this has always been the kind of advantage of being at a non-exclusive writing program, right? I mean, I imagine the conversations you have with kids at Iowa are radically different than the conversations I have with students at Roosevelt University in Chicago. Um, Because, you know, I know people who went to Iowa and I've seen their version of what I just described in my competitiveness. And it is, I mean, I will tell you that I would have absolutely broken down in, in, you know, in weeping, um, dealing with the way that these this sort of intra Iowa kind of competitiveness exists. Um, so I don't know. I mean, on one hand, I'm lucky to have students who are coming from very different places who spend the two and a half years at our program, just getting better at writing. Like that's what they do. Um, and they, I don't think any of them is operating under a fantasy that they're going to walk out of there with a six figure advance. Right. Yeah. I think, I think that that's, um, something that's changed you know very much in uh 20 years uh, maybe maybe even less where there were um some more opportunities for uh people in general i mean i felt like it started with uh you know people who went to phd programs and there were no jobs left and then by the time you get to mfa (laughs) you're starting it with the expectation that you're not going to come out of this with some tenure track job or there are no tenure track jobs. And yet you have one 
So, uh, <laughs> but that that was a long time ago, right? Yeah. Um, I I want to ask you one more thing. We mentioned the bafflements. Yeah. Can, can you talk about what those are? Confusion versus bafflements, or and so, how they work? Yeah. So I, it it seems to me, and and my my kind of attraction to the word largely comes out of Marilyn Robinson's novel housekeeping, um, which is a book that I teach and a book that probably everyone should teach. Um, not only for like syntax, et cetera, but, um, for the fact that this, you know, housekeeping is essentially the story of, um, an adult narrator reflecting on the events of her childhood that she cannot, she cannot answer. Right. It's sort of like it's a it's a mystery novel without any prospect of solving the riddle. Right. And there are two riddles. One of them is why did my mother drop us off at our grandmother's and then drive a car into the lake and commit suicide? The other one was what happened between my sister and I? How is it that two sisters so close in age could end up two radically different people? So neither of those mysteries have any sort of answer to them. And so what Robinson does, um, because Robinson is a spiritual person, is she roots this in the kind of the great mysteries of faith is Mm -hmm. there are, there are questions that have no answers. And the only way to be a person of faith in the world is to take, is to take, um, you know, as a starting point that there will be no evidence, there will be no solution to this problem. Um, and so, you know, again, what I love so much about that book is that she she uses bafflement as a sort of framework for the question of God and faith, the question of me and my sister, and the question of our mother's suicide. Um, and you know, it's a it, the word shows up I think four times in the book, um, and it's it's a word that ended up being for me really central to going into skateboarding and knowing well that if indeed it is as interesting as I claim it is, um, which is the underlying argument of this book, skateboarding is very, very, very interesting, um, then I'm not going to ever get to the bottom of it. Um, And that, you know, trickled down then to questions about marriage. Like how in the world is it that two people can pledge their lives to each other, knowing full well that neither of them have any idea who they will be in 10 years? Um, So, you know, it became a very... <laughs> it became Marriage a very is an idea useful. That is a law that is a speech act. There, right. You say on page four. Yeah. yeah. So it be- it became very useful for me to think in terms of um, what what are what are the daily bafflements that we just live with, and what happens if we acknowledge them and say, "Hey, look, look at this p- profound mystery that we just we just kind of daily move through and past and among." shouldn't we celebrate those? And, you know, among those primary among those is this weird thing we've invented in the United States called skateboarding, which is very (laughs) strange. It's a very strange thing. Um, This reminds me of a passage from page 18 that I was hoping to read on air that I think captures a lot of the spirit of the book and its thesis, which like relates to exactly what you just said. Is it cool if I read a paragraph here from your book or do you want to read it, Kyle? I'd kind of like to hear you read it, Dave. Okay, sure. I'm happy to read it. I, I was telling Matt before we got on the call, I read the entire chapter nine of The Outsiders out loud to a class yesterday. Wow. It took like 45 minutes. It took so long. <laughs> with a mask on, with an N95, it was just like parched. And like It's like a biome under my mask, you know, with like its own ecosystem. Um, so I've had a lot of practice lately. Uh, page 18. 
There is too much of this time and this world contained within skateboarding for its interests to be unique to its practitioners. Skateboarding is among the greatest human developments or discoveries of the last century. The mere fact of its emergence, which is to say nothing of its circuitous path by which it's developed into its current global form, is as significant as any progress in music, language, or the visual arts. It is every bit as relevant to our moment as yoga, tarot, protest, fascism, or cooking. As relevant as any attempt, in fact, to sort through what it means to be a person who would like to live among and with other people. It is a practice of both faith and finite hard reality, and its rightful place is among the humanities. In saying this, I mean that to know skateboarding is to know more completely the rigors, rewards, and negotiations of being human. That was beautiful, man. Um, Yeah, damn, my jaw just completely sunk off my face when I read that. And Um, and actually, when I when I read that part, this is in kind of the introduction, right? Like chapter one. Yeah, this Um, is very early. I, I could tell right away that this is a very mature piece of writing. And mm. I felt that for the whole book that a lot of the ideas in here were something that had been uh, developing in your mind for a long time right. and probably reworked and reworked over and over. Uh, and it came off to me as um, not something you would expect again from, from a book about a, a skateboarding essays to say, here's something yeah. super mature piece of writing so mm. um congrats again on that i want to mention a couple of other things that worked for me really well in the book one was uh a lot of the stuff you wrote about brands and like mm. brands moving into the space and how fucking like the corporatization yeah just like how even yeah. a lot of the the marketing efforts are of mm. of brands um uh, it's kind of what I'm involved in in my day job, and I just want to say it, it rings really true to me, mm, like from yeah. from just a general like content marketing point of view. Yeah. Um, I thought that was spot on, and what you're talking about of uh, bafflements and and really mysteries of the universe stuff is uh, when you were just talking about it made me think of another really one of the most poignant points of the book, which is about Sandy Hook, mm. and really just how fucking baffling that whole thing was and like Mm -hmm. unknowable, like the one person who knew will never have access to. Yeah. And just completely, you know, not just grief and terror, all of these emotions mixed up, but this unknowability of it, you know, of, of of the question a lot of people ask when they wake up is like, why, what's the meaning of this? And, that's really, really, I don't know, awful thing to contemplate. And yet you bring it into the book because it, it was part of what was in the, the air of the world in yeah. December, 2012. Yeah. And I think, I think also, um, for me, what, what you see in Sandy Hook is, is sort of what happens with any sort of mystery, which is some force or forces rushing in immediately to fill up whatever the space is, right? Anytime there's, there's any sort of emptiness, any sort of um, vacuum, um, w- what, what we have, our interests will rush in there. And often those are forces of the marketplace, right? Like get in there and sell, sell, sell. But with Sandy Hook, I mean, what we saw was something far more hideous, which was the narrative impulse, right? Like let's leverage this. 
let's leverage this into some sort of political um, rhetoric, which which is, I mean, about as about as hideous as as the human kind of impulse toward narrative can possibly be. Here is a tragedy, and now let's rush in there immediately and claim all sorts of things about dishonesty and and false flags, and you know, erase the experiences of people who are there. Um, so yeah, I mean that, that I think, you know, this gets us back to that question of like, whence the, whence the repulsion with narrative and, you know, Sandy Hook was, was a big part of it. Well, and I think it also says something about the community and mm -hmm. that people were very desperate to, um, to say this affected me. And I, I was living in Denver whenever Columbine happened. Mm -hmm. And like, I swear within like two days, you could buy a t-shirt at the grocery mm -hmm. store that was like a ribbon that said like, we are Columbine and people were just so, and I was like, these are people who didn't go to school there. Their kids didn't go mm -hmm. there, yeah. but they lived in the general area and they were just so eager to be like claiming this tragedy as well, this, this all happened to all of us, right? Because I kind of lived down the road, you know, right. 20 miles from it. And that need for just being like, I, this affects me. I'm part of this. And it's like, do you really want to claim that? But right. And what what is community? Like, and what does that mean community is, of course? Right. Like, what what is that doing to this notion of community? And so when we have other things that are tangible and real and weekly and routine that actually show us what community is, right? Like, I, I haven't gone to church since before college. You know, I, I grew up in a Mennonite slash Baptist family. Um, I have felt in the last two months i've lived on the my block i've lived on since 2006 there's a giant church on the corner and i have not once even considered going inside of it and it mm. is it is in the last two months i have just sort of started like you know sniffing it out like what's mm. what is this like why not why not on sunday stop in why not mm. recall what it's like faith aside scripture aside like what is it to be on a Sunday with a group of people who have all agreed to mm -hmm. go to a place, um, for this sort of fellowship. I mean, I'm, I'm curious about that. I'm, well, I'm I'll, I'll tell you for me, I had the exact opposite experience where, I mean, I grew mm. up in an evangelical Christian church and, uh, once I moved away from the community, once you take the community piece away, yeah. I was like, no interest. Yeah. And right. just yeah, me right. personally, any kind of like faith, uh, was not present. What I really loved was the community. Yeah, so, right. I mean, I know for a fact, like, yes, you could put me pretty much in any group of people and I will try to make a, com like, if there's a problem to be solved, the community is the answer. Yeah. Um, but I also, you are a great community. Well, that. that's just my, my Along whole thing that I know. <laughs> in, in, <laughs> in general, I, I really do believe in that, but, uh, mm. I can't, can't deal with the, Right. All the Bible stuff anymore. Yeah. 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 Some of it's very odious. Sorry, yeah. I just can't do yeah, it. For sure. Especially what but, it's become now. But I mean, we even write, it's funny you say this, right down the street from us, we have like a super progressive, like yeah. Yeah. LGBT taken homeless people and refugees. Like if you were to be yeah. a part of a progressive church, like they do exist. Yeah. I still don't feel totally. like I have that thing missing in me that I'm like, I right. need to. 
right. and, and some some bad blood there. But I do yeah. love the, you know, the nature of the community thing gets more mm-hmm. interesting to me the older I get. And yeah. mm-hmm. uh, I do see, you know, what does motivate someone to run to be on the town council of a small town? And it's like, they're not doing it for glory. They're not doing it for right. money. Money. It's like yeah. they really do love this community that they live in. Right. Um, right. I, so I think that that is spot on. Um, again, the, uh, the the poetry and a lot of the stuff that you you represent there. Mm. I think there is a lot of material in here that is that is poetic in its own way. Mm. Um, and even really the idea that I loved the idea of that you have this sort of failed novel and then from the ashes, the Phoenix arises of this other <laughs> even greater thing. Like in a way that's, that's, you know, that's poetic. Like rather if you yeah. had just said like, I wrote the second novel, it got good sales. I wrote this other third book, right. you know, the, like that right. sort of narrative is not as human in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And out of it, you get uh, the quote secular faith, on the innate goodness of skateboarding mm-hmm. page 36 <laughs> to go to the faith question like um yes communities are kind of a, a form of like secular faith yeah. intersection right of a bunch of people who believe in the same thing yeah. that could be any activity whatever it is but yeah. um there's something really good about skateboarding and skateboarding communities and i've really experienced that too yeah well and going back to the the thing we were talking about your own vulnerability in the book you know to talk about everything from your beliefs to your relationships and you know like are people gonna dig this weird hobby that i have in some sense you know you're allowing yourself to be watched in the book and i guess you know one question i had for you was like is that a consequence of being watched as a skateboarder right like you're being By watched your filmer right or by well, it's a very guards, public thing too, right? Are... Like you're out in public, mm-hmm. yeah, and you're being judged in a way right there. Like, does that prepare you in some way for this? Saying maybe it's the attitude of like, well, fuck it, and what do I got to lose? You know? I th- yeah, <laughs> uh, I think the the act of watching became more and more central, right? I mean, when I when I sort of took the turn along the way and sort of um, started trying to understand the sort of phenomenology of skateboarding and thinking about thinking about um, the process of watching and how much of the activity of skateboarding is actually seeing the world. Um, but, you know, to tie in the idea of community, like watching your colleague, watching your peer, watching someone you don't know, right? I mean, the sort of thing that would lead me to an underpass in Oakland where I don't know anyone in a parking lot and total stranger accomplishes something on the other side of the parking lot. And I like scream in encouragement for them. And that's it. That's the full extent of our engagement. Maybe they acknowledge me, um, means that there's something in what I'm seeing. There's something in what I'm seeing that's tied to my sort of internal state. Um, I, I do think that probably performance is part of it, but it's, Anytime I think of it as a performance, I have to think of it as a symmetrical performance, right? It's what's beautiful about it is that we're, we're all on stages. Um, and, and, you know, four, here, four inches off the ground, right? Exactly. Rolling stages, in the book. <laughs> uh, which is why, you know, this, the sort of invitation to start thinking of marriage in this way is so important. Like I know my wife better than anyone in the world. She knows me better than anyone in the world. I see her differently than anyone else in the world, right? Like, 
put her in a room full of people, I will be more attuned to her body movements and her breath and her hair than anyone else there. And again, we sort of take that sort of thing for granted. If you spend your life skateboarding and watching other people skate and you know the nuance of a good kickflip and a bad kickflip, you can tell when someone's not really trying a trick. They're just sort of bailing their way gently up to it and they're getting ready to really get the courage to sort of actually try. You can see that stuff and it's nonverbal. And it's just a language. And, and of course, that's what we do with, that's what intimacy is. Like, that's exactly what it is for me to spend the last X years married to my wife. Uh, so, you know, I think, I think, yes, performance is part of it. And putting a book out is a performance. Um, failing is, is a risk of performance. Success is this moving bar that you'll never hit. So you should probably start, stop worrying about it. Uh, all that stuff. But also like for me, you know, for my kind of, when I think, when I think now on this side of the book for what really matters, it's really that sort of reflexive process of, of seeing and being seen. It's that symmetry of, of what it means to be among people who know as well as you do who you are and what you're trying to do. Uh, and it must feel good to put out something you're proud of. God, it's the best. (laughs) I mean, it's the best. It's a strange thing to publish a novel as a young person because it's like, well, you know, if someone's like, Oh, I'm going to pick up your, I picked up a copy of your first book and it's like, what? I was pretty young when I wrote that. Like, I, <laughs> wasn't writing for you. you that, know, was, that was something I wrote in my 20s. Uh, so, yeah, it's really, really nice to have a book out that, I mean, there's not really much I would change. There's really not much that I would change about this. And it feels it feels good to have that out in the world and and to know that. It, th- that the sort of the struggle, the the eight years of w- working on a novel that were full of despair and full of hopelessness mm-hmm. and real, real doubts about whether I could keep doing, th- you know, whether physically and emotionally I could keep doing it mm-hmm. um, to know that that has resulted in a thing that whatever it does and whatever, whatever it does and doesn't do with sales or reception. Like I'm, I'm very happy with it. That's great. Be. Thank you. Thanks. Um, Dave, any final thoughts from your end? Oh, tons. <laughs> We've only just scratched the surface of what I've written down on my notepad in front of me. Um, a few really kind of more fun and specific ones would be, you claim that on page 122, there's no way to cheat at skateboarding except for exactly 2.5 beers. Yeah. And I've never tested that, <laughs> probably because I didn't drink a lot in my, like, a serious skateboarding days that came a bit later. Yeah. But like, is that, is that for real? I've had that. Affir- I mean, I've had other people agree with that when, when that <laughs> really? article okay. first came out, I'll try that soon. I, I will say that it's probably dipped for me down to probably like 1.75. 1. 1. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably where I am <laughs> right now. Um, okay. but you know, it's like shooting pool, right? Like, I don't know if mm-hmm. you guys ever go to a bar yeah. and shoot pool. There's a sweet spot and it's sort of like, yeah. I'm not, you loosen up a little, you're not caring too much. And it's, it leads to a sort of fluency. I find that with board games too. Oh yeah. <laughs> get a pint in me and I just like, it takes a bit of the edge off. I'm take a bit more risks right. and it usually pays off. Right. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Steve Barra is a very famous skateboarder who's also a Scientologist. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if he still is. A friend of mine actually dated him for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, he comes up in your book, not very favorably. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your, what is your take 
on Barra. He he like overrode some advertisement and just said like shut something down completely. Go on about this. Uh, st- I'm trying to think of a way to lasso <laughs> Steve Barra into this conversation where it doesn't. Uh-huh. I mean. The first way that Barrett came up originally was in comparison in an article I wrote to Andrew Reynolds. I was saying he was kind of the yeah. the anti Reynolds. Um, yeah. That, but they both rode for Birdhouse. They're both in the end, yeah. which is like one very iconic skate video that was. So where I think Barrett is very useful is in the sort of considerations of what it means to be an adult who can who comes out of skateboarding and continues to skateboard. Like my sort yeah. of armchair analysis of Barra is that he's one of the most childish people alive. Um, and you know, he's managed to create some businesses and do very well for, for a while. He had, yeah. And they, for a while they had a sort of undue amount of control in the skateboard industry. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, he's just, he's, he's got some classically narcissistic tendencies. Um, and that's not surprising. I guess the argument that, you know, the the role he plays in the book is that, well, of course you're going to encounter this. Of course, in a in an industry run by people who have been playing on a toy their whole careers, like you're going to mm-hmm. you're going to run into some people who are, are going to have some sort of arrested development and and right. you know, Barra kind of bears the weight of that for me. Is Steve Barra the Jonathan Franzen of the skateboarding world? <laughs> <laughs> no, because Jonathan Franzen continues to write really, really good sentences that no matter how um, repugnant I feel the ethos of those sentences are, I cannot deny the aesthetic um, and, you know, the literary merit. You know, I just can't read it. I, I, I it's you know, it's like a gallon of milk. It's trying to drink too much milk. Um, but but Barra hasn't hasn't effectively ridden a skateboard in a beautiful way and in a very long time. Um, So, you know, I mean, the argument is, is that Franzen is getting, continues to be getting better. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, Crossroads seems to be like a real, Dave, why did you bring up Franzen? Can we edit this out? (laughs) No way. We have, we can't not mention him at least once. (laughs) So no, he's not, he's not that. Okay. That does raise an interesting question, which is who would that be? And that I might need a minute to really <laughs> okay. think on. Okay. Um, and yeah, you mentioned earlier Dylan Reeder, which is a skater that I... So we're just kind of geeking out here, Matt, about skating, like really specific skate stuff. Sorry. Uh, but one final thought on this is that I'd never heard of this... <laughs> you're fine, sir. Uh, this skater before. He was kind of in my like limbo phase where I didn't really like look at skateboarding mm. for a decade or so. Um, and so... This was completely my introduction mm. to Dylan Reader, this chapter, and I spent a lot of time on YouTube yeah. looking at his stuff, especially with the Street League. Uh, it was like 2012 Street League that you write about, yeah. where he's standing next to Mikey Taylor, who's a skater that I remember, and the way that Mikey Taylor's looking up at the Jumbotron with reader next to him and the way that you can see that he is like trying to emulate mm-hmm. his style in a really self-conscious and affected kind of way and man like the way that you teased analysis out of that moment was brilliant like i probably wouldn't have even caught that but you just like you sunk into this in a way that like, really grabbed me and i just was like i i lit up it was such a fun part of the book to read and then i watched tons of 
Dylan Reader footage and like this guy was nuts. He was he was a singular like mm-hmm. generational um talent isn't even the right word right i mean he was he was someone who changed the skateboarding industry like he mm-hmm. he came along and and sort of messiah his way um <laughs> you know the sort of unlikely messiah um yeah but yeah i mean you know the the good thing about i i, I thank you for that that sort of kindness but you know the good thing about analyzing skateboarding as opposed to like performing a close reading of a text um mm-hmm. is that it's it's pleasurable to watch these things over and over again, right? I mean, it is mm-hmm. pleasurable, um, and it's also not extremely subtle, right? I mean, what Mikey Taylor does in that moment that you're referencing is mm-hmm. is exude his desire to be the person next to him, and yeah, again, like completely. skaters will see that skaters will say, "Oh, he wants to yeah. be him. Like this guy yeah. wants to be this guy," and you can yeah. see it. Um, totally. And so he's tugging his shirt down to try to, yeah, he's trying color. to, he's trying to broaden his own, his own t-shirt neckline. And, and so again, like, I guess the thing that I would hope what you're speaking to is, is like modeling a kind of mimesis of what skater brain does. And if you can mm-hmm. model it and say like, Hey, is, do you see these thought patterns? Like this is constant for these kids mm-hmm. who you see in the parking lot who are dirty and wearing yeah. duct tape on their shoes keep in mind that the way they're looking at the world this is what's going on mm-hmm. um and so you know the the hope would be that there's there's something redemptive about that there's maybe a reader or two who come away from this and think like oh this actually this actually is is a is a worthwhile practice mm-hmm and maybe with a little vampiring. God, a little posing. That part, that part was so great too. It's like, oh yeah, I remember people kind of doing that. I don't think I've ever heard it called being called vampiring though, where a skater lands a trick mat and then they put their hand up like this and their arm, their back arm, kind of like that. I'll show like you. Style, I'll send you like style move. It's almost like dabbing. It's like putting up a cape. Yeah, it's almost like dabbing, and then like the back arm goes up, like holding the cape, like Dracula or something. Uh, Dave, I'll send you, I'll send you a link to some people who are particularly emulative of him. It's really (laughs) you can see. Sounds good. Yeah, cool. That sounds fun. Um, We haven't covered stuff about like there's a lot of great critical theory stuff about architecture in this Mm -hmm. book. Um, That's all going to be stuff that interests people who like the same kinds of like books and things that we talk about on the show. Um, a lot of the stuff that you talk about subculture here and especially like corporate co-opting and commodification of skateboard culture in like the last decade or so, especially, um, reminded me of Dick Hebdige punk, um, essays from the seventies, you know, Mm. where like he writes about the commodification of this, like really kind of, um, iconoclastic subculture and then capitalism just gets its meaty hooks into it and then makes that cool and mainstream Mm. even though it's supposed to be um sort of a a subculture of protest Mm. against capitalism Mm -hmm. to begin with skateboarding kind of strikes me as a very similar thing as like punk culture so i think there's a lot of like great um critical theory analysis stuff that people i mean from this book too from my perspective though skateboarding hasn't been fully co-opted and mm. like kids, I'm sure there's pockets that haven't kids that I know that who get into skateboarding are still considered like somewhat rebellious and yeah. in a way that like maybe what I see is like attempt to co-op that stuff would be almost from 
of like steering a kid away from a skateboard into like a hoverboard or like, <laughs> you know, of like, let's get you onto some real board or, or, you know, just completely away from it. But I, I honestly just don't, it's almost like, um, like baseball, like it's not cool. Not that many kids are like young kids are doing it anymore. Um, and there's a lot of old dudes like my age who love it. Uh, but not, you know, it's a totally different analogy, but the, the ethos of skateboarding seems pretty intact to me, like from like kids who are into it. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if, if I, if I do believe some of the claims I've made in this book, which most of them I do, (laughs) right. I mean, some of these are sort of, um, you know, antagonisms, right. Uh, one of the things I do believe is that skateboarding really truly is going to be okay. Like skateboarding will always yeah. resist whatever the forces are. Right. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And you know, ideally what, whatever that core sort of heart is, um, is going to become more and more interesting as we go, you know, like, like there will, there will be the Olympic kids. There will be the, the, the well-coached, six-year-old kids whose parents have them on Instagram and, and they're doing outrageous maneuvers at the park at age six and they're burned out by age 18 or they keep doing it, you know, like you're, we're going to have all gradients of that. And we do have all gradients of that. Um, but what remains is that it's a really hard thing to do and it's a really unpleasant thing to do to your body. And as we discussed earlier, there's no cheating it. Um, you can be given all sorts of access to equipment and, um, spaces and, um, have coaches and do all that. Um, but there will be people who see through you. There will be people, um, for whom you will always be a kook. And that's, that sort of spirit, that sort of identification, that sort of built in, again, reflexive perception, um, that that's always going to be a value system. And, you know, like the challenge with punk was that it's not just that it got co-opted, it's that it got morphed into all of these other kind of forms and just like absolutely Mm -hmm. diluted. Um, and I don't know that's, that can happen to skateboarding. I think there will always be sort of like this, this kind of unapproachability. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's like an aesthetic purity to good mm-hmm, skateboarding. Mm-hmm. It's like good tennis or good sport of any kind. Yeah. The way that Wallace wrote about tennis and Federer, like you watch Shane O'Neill skateboard and you're like, my God, this is a, this is a miracle. But even he, I mean, yeah. even he for a long time wore the kind of criticism of being a robot, of being an inhuman kind of robotic soulless skater. Um, <laughs> but you know, again, like I could see that, what yeah. works against that is longevity. Like you keep doing yeah. it long enough and you keep, you know, re- revealing kind of the slivers of your weird interior self that mm-hmm. no one really opposes Shane O'Neill now. I mean, and that's the other thing is that longevity is a big part of this, you know, like Tony Hawk has been the sine wave of embracing and rejecting Tony Hawk, that the numbers of rises and falls we've been on with this guy. And like, he was sitting so pretty three years ago before he got on the NFT thing, he was untouchable. He was unhateable. And now it's just, I have not heard about this. Oh yeah. He's, he's just, yeah. Skateboarding has taken to NFTs in a way that's a little shameful and totally predictable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Um, 
and to use one of your terms, I got to say the Olympics were a lot of fun to watch as yeah. a non-skateboarder. I got to yeah. say that's that's probably one of the best freaking things ever to happen to the Olympics is <laughs> that they brought in skateboarding and the, the, just what they were wearing and like the personalities. It was the whole thing was super like fun in a way that a lot of really other competitive sports are not. Yeah. Um, I really want to thank you for being here today, Kyle. This has been awesome. Uh, we are going to take a break here in a minute and have you come back to do our um, bonus episode about the top books, top yeah, novels. Favorite books lately. Yeah. Um, yeah. My final thought now, going back to Matt's question 25 minutes ago, uh, no, was that so 12. Yeah, this book dredged up uh, a lot of really deep and warm memories for me memories that have been deeply recessed in my subconscious for a long time and like i was saying like it's hard it or at least you know 20 years ago it's hard to find good writing about skateboarding mm. it's hard to find good writing in this world when you consider how much writing there is and finding a book that is great writing about skateboarding is an even smaller universe of existence and kyle you've just wetted all of these things together so beautifully with this book so we just uh, we just so deeply enjoyed it, and thank you so much. It was a lot of fun to it. read, a lot of fun. It, yeah, thank you. And we could just do a part two and a part three. Like, <laughs> man, there's so much stuff we haven't covered. Yeah, we're gonna, now we're going to start a close reading page one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thank you. That it, it's that that's in, in, incredibly incredibly good to hear, and I'm I'm grateful. Cool. Thank you. That's awesome, um, Kyle. Where can people find you online? Where can people buy your book? Uh, where can people listen to your podcast, Vint? City, oh, thank you. New since the last time we talked to you. Yeah, well, right. first of all, buy the book anywhere. Um, you know, I'd prefer you buy it from your local shop. Um, Bookshop.org, of course, has it. Um, then, uh, you, you know, I don't know if you if you don't do the bad thing. Um, yeah, don't do the bad. <laughs> don't go to the place, but. Um, if you got to go to the place, go to the place. Um, I am reachable on Twitter at either at Kyle Beachy or at the most fun thing for a skateboard specific material. Uh, and yeah, I'm part of a, a, a progressive leftist skateboard podcast called Vent City um, with Ryan Lay, Ted Schmitz, Ted Barrow, um, Chris and Ebeling and Alex White. And so, yeah, if you want to check that out, it's called Vent City. We would love to have you. Um, we, we, we see ourselves as um, inclusive in terms of really everything, but particularly skaters and non-skaters. Come through. It's, a, it's amusing. Awesome. And your audience uh, radically dwarfs ours already <laughs> in the very short couple of years that you've been doing it. So, <laughs> so be it. It's a quality, yes. not quantity, but thanks well done. thanks yeah. <laughs> for being here. This has been awesome. Uh, really appreciate yeah. you taking the time to talk to us about your book. Happy to do it. Totally. Happy to do it. A joy. <laughs> and Matt, where can folks find uh, us? Oh, where can Cavity Show on Twitter and Instagram? And uh, you can email us, concavityshow at gmail.com. <laughs> we love getting emails. Some people do uh, email us every time we put out a new episode. So that's awesome. Um, and who do we and need we want to, to thank? Who do we, we need to thank? thank Dave? A few new patrons. We go. got a few new patrons. Um, we want to thank Sefton Dennis for joining the team. Uh, someone named John Booker. Any relation to you, Matt? Um, ever heard of John Booker? Uh, well, you know, I have a couple of John Bookers in my life, and uh, this particular <laughs> right. one is 
my dad. Oh. Yeah. So, John, Thanks, thank dad. you so much for your support for the show. I <laughs> uh, also want to thank Kale Judy, who we talked about last episode in our bonus episode, Matt. He does a podcast called Album versus Album, which I talked about. It's one of my favorite things of the year. And like a couple days after that came out, um, you know, I tagged him and I tagged their podcast in our Instagram post. And all of a sudden a, a notification came through that my friend Kale uh, supported us on Patreon. So he listened to the episode. He was really, really touched by the way we talked about it. And um, so he's talking to me about maybe having me on the show to talk about some album versus album down the line here. So I've been brainstorming. Anyway, so thank you, Kale. Go check out album versus album podcast. Vent City Podcast. Thanks always to Parquet Courts for the music for both our main episode and our bonus episode. Uh, Kyle Beachy, thank you so much again. Thank you. Thanks. Bye, guys. Catch me now as I say Into darkness Yeah, no, I've got, I brought a stack out because, you know, my, my stoner brain would just completely, he'd be like, what are you, what, what books have you read recently? Uh, like, oh, uh, well, I got to tell you, the Bible. Kyle, we had you on last time. <laughs> Your book recommendation section last time we had you, I read most of those like yeah. in the ensuing year or two, like Valeria Luiselli and, yeah. and stuff you mentioned was just like damn yeah that like was so many good books you named there and that really put us on a path oh good yeah that sure. valerie i want to reread that i'd like to go back to that um yeah, the lewis selly book i think i like all of her shit man this rachel is that, that book like ruined rachel she loved it so much yeah it's it's and it's it's ex- it, like what a what a take on marriage too like mm-hmm. my god yeah, yeah. although yep. between you and me i don't really like shit written from a kid's perspective Oh, so, I generally don't either. Um, <laughs> I generally so, don't either. so if just I don't mind. I don't mind. What, no, the line you're supposed to say, Kyle, is like, "Well, my next book is actually all from a child." Oh, <laughs> it's a really precocious sort of like Brooklynite, you know, twelve-year-old. Right. It's written from inside of a two thousand dollar stroller, <laughs> alternating chapters from the point of view of a dog. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm out. No. Oh, fuck, uh, all right, Brooklyn. All right. Dave, get us on track here. What what do we say?